As the federal government aggressively moves into provincial jurisdiction, the question is, is the Canadian Federation working as it should? And does that have an impact on your prosperity and your freedom? A clear path forward requires looking back and learning. Good public policy requires human connection. It's a consideration of the facts, applying common sense and innovation. It's urban, it's rural, it's real life. We all have something to contribute. We all have a responsibility to get informed because there's a little piece of Canada in all of us, isn't there? Let's learn on this path together. This is Leaders on the Frontier. Well, today we're going to talk about that question with our guest, uh, Dr. Dennis Modry. Dr. Dennis is the board member and the founder of the Alberta Prosperity Institute. Welcome, Dennis. Thank you very much, Dave. Great to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. I'm very excited to talk with you because um, you have a very interesting initiative and vision for renewing our country and uh, really looking at hard questions related to the operation of our federal system. And so my question to you is, where did you grow up, uh, Dennis? And uh, why did you found, uh, why were you one of the founders of the Alberta Prosperity Initiative? Sure. Uh, well, I was born in Camrose, raised in Edmonton, educated for 17 years, um, six in, at the U of A, eight at McGill, and three at Stanford. Came back to Alberta and started uh, Western Canada's first heart and lung transplant program and directed that in the ICU for 30 years. But in the background, um, during that time, I also played a role on the finance committee of the provincial government during the Getty, Klein, and Stelmac era. And um, what uh, I've been bothered for a long time consequent to the national energy policy and the harm that um, was caused to Western Canada, particularly Alberta and Saskatchewan as a result. And so I've been concerned about um, federal overreach of provincial constitutional authority for quite some time. And I guess um, it really came to focus for me uh, in 2003, when Ralph Klein and I were having a chat at the annual general meeting in Red Deer, and um, I said to Ralph, uh, and at that time there was tremendous dysfunctional communication between Kretchen and, and Ralph Klein, mm -hmm. and uh, about a number of issues, mainly provincial jurisdiction versus federal jurisdiction. And so I said to Ralph, I said, I think I've got a solution to fix the dysfunctional relationship between Alberta and Ottawa. And he says, you do? And I says, yeah, would you like to hear about it? And he said, um, absolutely. So I said, well, Ralph, it's based on this question. If you were the president or the prime minister of the sovereign country of Alberta and Canada came to you and said, we would like Alberta to join Confederation under the current terms and cost of membership, would you? And I'll always remember his response. Uh, he said, to ask the question is to know the answer. Of course not. So I said, well, I'm glad you said that because the corollary is, don't you think you and caucus have a moral and an economic responsibility to Albertans wow. to fix this dysfunctional relationship? And he said, yeah, I guess we do. And I said, well, look, I'm working on a document that defines the algorithm of how to do this. So once I've completed it, let's meet. And so I completed the document. It's about 48 pages in length. Mm -hmm. vetted through constitutional lawyers, academics, prominent politicians like Don Mazankowski, um, engineers, other physicians, etc. And then I met with Ralph in his office in 2003, and we went through it, and he asked me if I would be interested in presenting it to caucus. I said, yeah, I would. And he said to me, um, okay, well, well, we'll make it happen. And then a couple of weeks later, we were work my secretary and I were working on the PowerPoint presentation, and uh, the chief of staff calls me and says, you're not going to present a caucus. And I said, well, why is that? And he said, well, your document is about separation. And um, I said, no, it isn't. It's not about separation. You missed the point entirely. The document was entitled Alberta at the Crossroads, Status Quo, We Do Nothing, Refederation, We Fix the Dysfunctional Relationship, or Autonomy. And autonomy, in my mind at that time, meant Alberta independence, becoming an independent sovereign nation. But the essence of the document was about leverage. 
-hmm. What is the leverage that Alberta could use to fix the dysfunctional relationship that it has with Ottawa, which has only become worse subsequent to Ralph's retirement? Mm -hmm. And um, could that leverage not just fix Alberta's relationship with Ottawa, but, but fix the dysfunctional relationship that other provinces mm -hmm. also have with Ottawa. And that was the essence of it. It was, it was really, and it still is, it's all about leverage. And, um, and so as a result of what's been happening to us in the last, you know, 15, 18 years, um, our freedoms have become progressively restricted and our economy uh, progressively compromised and um, inflation um, and the cost of living only getting worse. And so mm -hmm. therefore our quality of life and our standard of living is going down. It, so, so, so just to clarify here, just to recap, Dennis, so you're, you're really challenging us to look at the relationship between the federal government, not just the relationship with the province, namely Alberta, but all provinces and say that this relationship isn't working in anymore and it matters to us because it's about freedom and prosperity. Is that it? That's, that's in essence it. And we felt very strongly that Alberta was in probably the strongest position to drive the um, agenda mm -hmm. of fixing this dysfunctional relationship that, that Alberta and other provinces have with, uh, with uh, Canada. So we've come up with the belief that if we can save Alberta, we can save the rest of Canada. Hmm. Wow. So Dennis, you've outlined a very ambitious agenda. And so I'm going to ask a dumb question. So why does this matter to Albertans, let alone Canadians? Like why, why should I care about the fact that some governments get along together and play well together in this wonderful federal relationship that we call Canada? Well, fundamentally, you know, um, when you consider what is going on, um, are, are Albertans in general okay with being overgoverned, overregulated, and overtaxed? The answer is no. Are we okay with the relentless attacks on our uh, hydrocarbon industry, mm -hmm. which generates over 8,000 products that the world uses, not just for transportation uh, and heating and cooling? Um, are we uh, here in Alberta, are we okay with um, the the um, uh, the relentless attack, if you will, um, on our prosperity um, with the climate agenda? Mm -hmm. uh, and um, are we willing to endure? You know what what is going on there? Are we okay with? Uh, wokeness, cancel culture, and critical race theory. No, we're not. We're not okay with that. There's a number of there's a number of issues, uh, you know, that 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 we are facing that we think other regions are upset with as well. Um, not the least of which, for example, might be: um, Are you okay with biological males competing with females in sports? Are you okay with the teaching of multiple genders um, and the grooming of children in, in elementary school? Mm -hmm. um, are, are you okay with, um, for example, um, the authoritative figures pushing puberty blockers and the surgical mutilation of children under the age of 18 before the age of consent? Are we okay? Many in Alberta are not. What about the uh, what about the issue of parental rights uh, to um, control the upbringing uh, and the education of their children? That is being eroded. Uh, what about the issue of diversity, equity, and inclusion mm -hmm. as the basis for hiring, advancement, and and scholarship? Um, many of us are not are not happy with that, but we're not the only ones. It's the same thing elsewhere in Canada. And what about what about the uh, federal government and the liberal media blocking uh, conservative thought? Mm -hmm. um, and what about schools, colleges, and universities, for example, censoring um, conservative thought uh, and and preventing debates in which mm -hmm. a conservative 
conservative perspective might be uh, presented. Okay, so 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 part of this is Dennis. In this context, though, all those issues are very important. But aren't a lot of those things under provincial control? Well, uh, no, it 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 isn't. I mean, if you look at Bill C eleven and Bill C eighteen of the federal government, Bill C eleven um, prevents uh, content uh, being produced by anybody. Uh, that is at variance with what the federal government would want. Um, so it's a form of, of the prevention of free speech. Mm-hmm. And then the same thing with Bill C-18, which is the Online, Online News Act. Mm-hmm. So, so these kinds of things um, cut across the entire spectrum in Alberta uh, and, and, and across Canada and across you know, any jurisdictions that want to uh, you know, prevent free speech. I mean, if you think about it, probably the most fundamental basic tenet of democracy is the ability to express an opinion. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, that is, and that is being squelched. So there are many, many things that, that cannot be fixed. Now, if you take in Alberta and in any province, what can a province do that does not require opening and changing the constitution. It can take control of policing, such as has occurred in Ontario and Quebec. They have their own provincial police force. It can take control of policing, pensions, immigration, employment insurance, provincial tax collection. Well, why take control of pensions from an Alberta perspective? Because we overfund the pension plan by $3 billion a year. Why would we want to take control of employment insurance? Because we overfund it by a billion dollars a year. Why do we want to have control of immigration? Not dissimilar to Quebec, right? We want to be able to ensure that immigration meets the needs of the region. Um, And it doesn't mean to say that we don't have a heart for people that are displaced, Mm -hmm. but that has to be controlled. And the way the federal government is operating right now, it certainly isn't controlled. But what can't we do? Mm -hmm. What requires leverage that Albertans want? Well, we can't take control of federal taxation. Mm-hmm. He who has the gold rules. We give $60 billion a year to Ottawa through federal taxes. We get back 23. What's that 33 used for? Because we didn't get a cent of it in return. Mm-hmm. So it's used for virtue signaling causes that don't align with what Albertans want to see happen. So, so the bottom line here, Dennis, is that your vision is really quite an ambitious one that says, Albertans want to take better control of their own province so it reflects the needs and aspirations of that community. Is that the bottom line? Well, that is the that is the bottom line. And there are a number of things that yeah. require leverage in order to achieve that right. objective. That's now, when you say important. leverage, do you mean uh, gaining control? Or I think that word would be foreign to our audience. What do you mean by leverage? Lever- leverage means the right now we have an imbalance uh, of power between the federal government and the provincial government. How do we solve that imbalance of power? When we want something, we talk from the federal government, let's say we want to end equalization, which is a good um, metaphor uh, to deal with all of the things that we would like to see happen. So we had a referendum in Alberta, right? And in 2020, October of 2020, and that referendum, um, was supported by and, the populace. And I should just clarify, what is equalization and what was the referendum about? Well, that was equalization um, was, a, for, was a, a process that was started in 1957. Um, and it was legislated uh, into law at that time. And from 1957 to 1965, Alberta was the recipient of funds that came to help build Alberta at that particular time. So equalization really is is a uh, concept in which funds from wealthier provinces are transferred to poorer regions so that they have similar social programs, similar similar opportunities. Well, it's like everything, things can get abused. And so between 1965 and, and this date, nearly $700 billion has left Alberta for which we've not received a cent in return. Wow. 
nearly 700 billion. And that's consequent to equalization and the national energy policy. Mm -hmm. The national energy policy is important to understand in this context as well. If we look at the history of the founding mm -hmm. of this country, if we think of the, the British North America Act, we know mm -hmm. that in 1867, yep. a family of uh, British colonies in the northern part of our continent yep. uh, got together uh, through the, the genius of so many others, including Sir John A. Macdonald, and said, wow, we could work together as a particular type of federation. And they worked together as co-founders with the provinces equal to each other, working together to create a federal government that they thought they could serve um, uh, themselves better and create a, a new country, Canada. So would you say it's important to remember that history and how does that inform your vision about how we need to go about our business today? No, that that is important. And I think the original concept of, um, of a federation um, with provinces having um, the autonomy to uh, develop um, to the extent that they wish to develop and to have their self-determination um, was was the right concept. Mm -hmm. But it, it didn't work that way, and it didn't work that way by design. And this is what's important to understand. I'm going to show you, a uh, hold up a book. Can you see this? I sure can. This is a book. Um, about Clifford Sifton. Now, why is it relevant? Because Clifford Sifton was the Minister of the Interior in the Liberal government of Sir Wilfrid Laurier, mm -hmm. who was responsible for bringing Alberta and Saskatchewan into Confederation in September 1, 1905. But it's what he said in a speech in Winnipeg in 1904, which is referenced on page 95 of this book, the entire statement that he said is important to understand because when you understand it, you'll understand why Alberta um, has been treated the way it has been treated and why we started as a colony and we continue to be a colony to serve the interests of the East. And it's over time to fix that. But here's Sorry, what Alberta, you, you'd say that Alberta is like a colony of the rest of the country? Has been treated as a colony of the East. And I'll tell you why. Well, I already gave you a clue. We give we've given seven hundred billion dollars since uh -huh. nineteen sixty five. Yeah, we're 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 overtaxed. Like I said, we get we get taxed at sixty billion a year. We get back twenty seven. Uh -huh. So here's the point. This is what Clifford Sifton said in nineteen oh four. And when you understand how prescient this this comment is that he made, you'll understand why Alberta is in the dilemma that it is right now. So what he said in 1904 was this, we desire and all Canadian patriots desire. Now, Canadian patriots in 1904 are the people that are living in the regions of Ontario and Quebec because Alberta and Saskatchewan were not into, uh, hadn't joined Canada yet. So we desire and all Canadian patriots desire that the great trade of the prairies, the great trade of the prairies is Alberta's wealth, that the great trade of the prairies shall go to enrich our people in the East, to build up our factories and our places of work, and in every legitimate way contribute to our prosperity, not the prosperity of Alberta and Saskatchewan. Now, that's important to understand because that is the pervading um, perspective that the Laurentian elites still have about Alberta and Saskatchewan. Wow. Now, it's important to understand one other point, and that's the national energy policy. Mm -hmm. and, and, the, and, and the national energy policy was instituted in, in 1980. But prior to that, Alberta was becoming um, the center of economic power in Canada. Massive immigration was occurring from elsewhere in Canada to Alberta um, and from elsewhere in the world to Alberta. All five major banks were moving their head offices to Calgary and one did. But what was happening in Alberta at that time was, and, and by the way, that was occurring because of, of our hydrocarbon industry, basically liquid gold, if you will. But what was happening in Alberta collided what, what, with what was happening in Quebec with the Quebec secessionist movement. So Pierre Elliott Trudeau and Marc Lalonde 
And the financial elites from Toronto, Ottawa, and Montreal came up with a brilliant plan. That was a national energy policy. Mm-hmm. And the purpose of it was to further or aggravate, if you will, equalization. Fundamentally, what they wanted to do was transfer wealth from Alberta to again poorer regions in the country so that they would have similar social programs. But that wasn't the real reason. Mark Lalonde, we have it on tape, he said the reason for the national energy policy was to prevent Alberta from becoming the center of economic power in Canada and to buy Quebec's loyalty to Canada with Alberta's wealth. So when you understand that, and now you understand that that Justin Trudeau wants to end our hydrocarbon industry altogether, but yet he's perfectly fine in importing oil from Venezuela and Kazakhstan and Saudi Arabia and elsewhere, but he wants to end our hydrocarbon industry here in Alberta. Why is that? Okay, so this is really significant history. I mean, you've laid it on the line, Dennis, in terms of saying this is the heart of the story of Western, particularly Alberta alienation, because it's not just Alberta then, it's Saskatchewan, British Columbia as well. There's a number of provinces that have contributed massive amounts of money into the the federal system that go to other provinces. So um, this is a very different take or summary of history that people need to be aware of to understand kind of what's driving this sense of alienation. Is that fair? Well, it is fair. And, you know, Jack Mintz, who's the chair of public policy at the University of Calgary, mm-hmm. he, he came out with an article on November the 11th of 2021. It was reported in the um, National Post. And he pointed out that ending our oil and gas industry is going to result in a one third reduction in the average income of Albertans. So what is that going to do um, with respect to our quality of life and standard of living in this mm-hmm. province? Yeah, particularly when more oil and gas is required and um you know and and alberta does not have the capacity by 2035 which is what the federal government wants to completely convert uh, away from hydrocarbon industry to to drive our uh, electricity grid mm-hmm. our power grid it's just not possible so these these sorts of things anger people who um understand that this agenda that the federal government have has doesn't align with what the majority of Albertans want. Okay, so help me understand as a layperson on this one, Dennis, how does the federal government intrude into provincial jurisdiction? We do have the British North America Act, a founding document that defines the split and responsibilities between the, the province and the federal government. And one of them has to do with natural resources. Natural resources are the responsibility of the provinces. So on what what's the rational reason that the federal government thinks that they can shut down oil and gas in, in Alberta, let, let alone the rest of the country? How is that possible? Well, what they do is, and I'll give you three examples. What they do is they implement um, a regulation which supersedes the Constitution. So for example, take healthcare. The Canada Health Act, supersedes provincial constitutional authority on health care. What they did was um, the Canada Health Act is a regulatory act and it, and, it, and it overrode provincial constitutional jurisdiction to run the health care system. Okay. So in other words, the, the health, um, health is a provincial responsibility but the federal government got involved in provincial jurisdiction, but the provinces played ball with the federal government because the federal they, government they did help they did the money. Is that right? They did, and now our Canadian healthcare system functions in the lowest quartile of quality at the highest quartile of cost, mm-hmm. according to multiple uh, metrics of analysis. Mm-hmm. So here's where we are right now with the healthcare system. Secondly, uh, the carbon tax. The carbon tax also um, was ruled by the Alberta uh, Court of Queen's Bench before the king became the king. Uh, The Alberta Court of Queen's Bench ruled that the carbon tax was unconstitutional. 
And what did the federal government do? The federal government appealed it to the Supreme Court. What did the Supreme Court do? The Supreme Court twisted itself into a pretzel, wrapped themselves around the narrative of climate change and said, it is a legitimate law, hmm. the carbon tax. It is, a, uh, it is a legitimate regulation, the carbon tax. Now we're facing the Impact Assessment Act. Again, and, th and by the way, the carbon tax, of course, also um, is outside the constitution because again, it's up to the provinces to control completely the development transport and financing and revenue from their natural resources. Mm, right. So, so <clears throat> now the Impact Assessment Act is Bill C-69. Bill C-69 is the act that prevents any new pipelines from being developed. Um, and um, that is now before the Supreme Court. The Alberta Court of Appeal also ruled that the Impact Assessment Act is unconstitutional. The federal government has appealed that to the Supreme Court. Once again, how will the Supreme Court rule? And we'll have that ruling within a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. um, again, they will likely rule that the Impact Assessment Act is a valid act by the federal government and mm -hmm. therefore enforceable. So the point is, is that the provincial government has no leverage to prevent the carbon tax from carrying on. It has no leverage to prevent the Impact Assessment Act from occurring. It has no leverage to fix all of the other things mm -hmm. that are an irritant uh, and, and that which compromises Albertans and mm -hmm. people in Saskatchewan and in other regions of the country as well. So these are very significant examples, Dennis, that you've um, articulated well that really um, intrude in, in fundamental, um, really ultimately disastrous ways into provincial jurisdiction that people probably are not even aware of, are they? Well, I think, I think many people, you know, have been persuaded uh, that some of these things are necessary to do. They bought into the narrative of, of climate change mm -hmm. um, when there's, you know, over 1,400 climate scientists, including Nobel Prize winners, and a recent report from a Nobel Prize winner out of Princeton and out of MIT mm -hmm. that, um, that have said the, uh, the, the climate narrative has been falsified. So, so, so as, as more and more people become aware of this, more and more people are going to become angry about these climate policies that are being, you know, driven down our throat, as it were. Well, and it's, it's fascinating. Um, this last week, we noticed that the uh, new chair of the UN's intergovernmental uh, climate panel um, asserted that uh, a 1.5 degree Celsius change in temperature over the next 80 years is not an existential threat to the world. Uh, so I found that very interesting in terms of, of change of narrative. Um, mm -hmm. Who knows? But uh, the point is that our current federal government is maintaining that it, it is an existential threat and that they have the prerogative to basically um, do a lot of major changes that do affect mm -hmm. provincial uh, jurisdiction. And more recently, we've heard about the clean electricity policy. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So the federal government has um, uh, proposed the implementation of a law, a legislation that will require all provinces um, to ensure that their electric grid um, uh, is uh, powered by sources other than the hydrocarbon industry. Mm -hmm. Now, that's fine when you've got 80% of your uh, electricity uh, from hydro uh, or from nuclear, but Alberta and Saskatchewan, you know, 90% um, of our electricity is driven from oil and gas, mm -hmm. you know? So there, and, there, and there's no possible way to transition um, in 12 years to what they want. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what can the provincial government do what can the Alberta provincial government do to, um, you know, uh, ensure that we can move forward um, 
even if you don't believe in, in a net zero argument, but we can move forward to the provincial government's perspective that we can hit net zero, but by 2050, not by 2035. So okay. give us, in other words, give us the time, but the federal government doesn't seem to want to do that. So you Dennis, you've made a very um, powerful outline of how these issues of the relationship between the province and the federal government isn't really working for Alberta, but it's not really working for many other parts of the country as well. Can you tell us more about uh, the case of Saskatchewan and, and even British Columbia as an example? Well, in, in Saskatchewan, of course, they have the, the, the same issues that we have in Alberta. I mean, um, you know, it, it might as well be called Saskberta or Alsask. Because uh, we have we have the same we have the same kinds of uh, issues in Saskatchewan, uh, you know, um, and in Alberta, agriculture is a big one as well. And mm. and the kind of legislation that the federal government wants to implement to reduce um, um, hydrocarbon based uh, nitrogen based fertilizer mm -hmm. uh, will impact tremendously the uh, output, the agricultural output in both Saskatchewan and Alberta. And that does affect BC and Manitoba as well, and and other uh, and other producers. It's just that Alberta and Saskatchewan are the major producers mm -hmm. of um, of agricultural uh, products uh, in in Canada, not just for our use in Canada, but for export around the world. So, mm -hmm. so I would say that Saskatchewan and you know other regions, you know, have the same sorts of concerns. Uh, but in terms of the energy grid, BC, Manitoba, Ontario, and Quebec don't have the same um, reliance on the hydrocarbon industry. And so they are going to be uh, impacted mm -hmm. uh, because they have to move to 100% um, uh, power grid that precludes the use of hydrocarbons. Mm -hmm. And I just don't see how that's that's you know so that's a problem for other provinces as well as what, yeah. I'm, what i'm saying but it's it's a greater problem for alberta and saskatchewan but the whole attack on the um fossil fuels by the federal government is a very ironic one because when you look at this issue dennis mm -hmm. i'm sure you'd agree that it's not just about attacking the oil and gas industry per se mm -hmm. it's how that cascades right across every industry you mentioned agriculture well, what about forestry? What about manufacturing? Um, mining. Mining. Every industry is now ultimately um, going to be assaulted by these kinds of policies. So that means uh, an assault on Canadian standard of living, uh, the cost of living, everything. Um, and and I, that's what stuns me in terms of the kind of analysis that we see impacting mm -hmm. the lives of Canadians. This is a, this mm -hmm. is a big problem. Well, you know, and, and we've had exposure to what the outcome is going to be consequent to the national energy policy. Consequent to the national energy policy in Alberta, there were thousands of businesses that went under, other thousands of businesses mm -hmm. that left the province, mm -hmm. thousands of people who lost their homes, wow. and thousands of people who committed suicide. This is the kind of thing that we're facing. It's fundamentally an existential threat to our very way of life, our quality of life, our standard of living, and our actual life per se. Wow. These sorts of things. You know, even the medical industry relies on the hydrocarbon industry. If you think of all of the products yeah. that are used in healthcare, um, you know, ending the hydrocarbon industry is a ridiculous. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's it's absolutely mm -hmm. uh, fanatical mm -hmm. uh, to think that this is a reasonable thing to do. It's almost like these policies are not really policies. They're really ideology uh, pretending to be policy because they're not really grounded in reality in terms of how we can go about our work. So one of the examples I found very interesting is that um, mm -hmm. I, I talked with a gentleman last week who said, well, the key is just to build more windmills and solar panels. And I said, well, where do you think all that kind of quote alternative energy is based on? It's all based on oil and gas. Yeah, yeah. Well, it is uh, because you can't generate um, solar panels and you can't generate the windmills uh, without the oil and gas industry mm -hmm. um, and the machinery uh, to get the minerals for this. 
Um, and it's the same thing with batteries, you know, to, mm -hmm. get, to get the, the, the amount of energy required to generate uh, these uh, windmills and these uh, solar panels is never will never be replaced because of the inefficiency of solar panels and windmills right now mm -hmm. notwithstanding that you know putting solar panels and windmills on millions of more acres of land takes takes away um agriculture from those areas um mm -hmm. and um and livestock as well exactly and nor are they reliable um no. if you don't have wind you don't have power if you don't That's have right. sunlight, you don't have power. And yeah. uh, we, I think you alluded as well, it takes precious minerals from around the world to make them. And yeah. of course, that's all based on the oil and gas industries as well. Sure. So what you have is almost a delusional set of initiatives that are not based on reality. So this is, um, this is something that, the, you know, uh, places like Texas have run straight into uh, this uh, past year in the winter where they found that... Uh, that uh, without wind, they were they were finding that their grid was was uh, running into into a serious problems. Yeah, it was an, it was an excellent demonstration of the failure of um, of wind and solar to actually accomplish this. Now, it doesn't mean to say that we we have to be solely reliant on oil and gas. Mm -hmm. We could we could be we could be moving to uh, nuclear energy as well. But then you've got the the activists out there that are opposing nuclear as well, because they've seen, for example, what happened with Fukushima uh -huh. in Japan and, uh, you know, in Chernobyl as well. And so, yes, these are these are real risks. Right. But in the in this current era of micro reactors, uh, the risk is far great and there's no risk of a meltdown uh -huh. um, with this new generation of micro reactors. And so I know the provincial government in Alberta is looking to that as well. But until we get micro reactors in place, which isn't going to happen overnight, we need to be reliant on oil and gas. And even moving forward, there's the issue of transportation as well, uh -huh. um, and home heating and cooling. And, and uh, a lot of that is still going to be um, reliant on the hydrocarbon industry, as well as the mm -hmm. 6,000 products that emanate from a barrel of oil. Exactly. You know? So, Dennis, if we look at the really big picture, then we're as a country in a bit of a quandary here where yeah. you have all these differences and disagreements are really about really different worldviews about how we're going to live our lives as Canadians. You have a federal government that is in many respects pursuing very radical policies. They're, they're really socialists in many respects. On the other hand, you have provinces who have their governments who are not of that worldview. They believe yes. that parents should have rights over their children as minors, yes. Yes. Uh, as one example of many. So there's different, it's a kind of a clash of worldviews. And right. so you're saying that, gosh, we've got to grab a hold of this constitutional relationship because it's not serving us as a provincial community. Is that another right. way to say it? Yes, yes, it is. Because if you want to fix the dysfunctional uh, situation in Canada, you have to be able to get the provinces to come together with the federal government and change the constitution. Uh -huh. And viva la difference. Let the different provinces um, use the, um, the, the people of that province and the resources that they have to create the kind of province that they want. Exactly. And then let's, yeah. let's share the differences rather than try and make every province right. exactly the same. But the problem is to change the constitution, there are five hurdles. And very briefly, you have to have seven of 10 provincial legislatures representing 50% of the population to agree to change the constitution. Right. Can Two, you repeat that again? What's that condition? Well, there are five. And the first condition is you have to get seven of 10 provincial legislatures mm -hmm that represent 50% of the population to agree to open and change the constitution, then any constitutional changes have to be approved by a majority vote in the House of Commons. Mm -hmm. And we don't have representation by population. So if it's a resolution to change the constitution that, that, that benefits the West at the expense of the East, the East won't support it. 
exactly. such as yeah. ending equalization. Third hurdle is you have to have a majority vote in the Senate mm -hmm. to change the Constitution. The fourth hurdle is Quebec has a veto, even though they didn't sign the 1982 Constitution Act. And the fifth hurdle is that when there's a constitutional battle, it will be decided by the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court has nine justices, all appointed from the Prime Minister's office, three from Quebec, three from Ontario, one from uh, Eastern Canada, and two from the West. So we've seen wow. how constitutional battles uh, play out. We've seen it with the carbon tax. We've seen, and we're going to see it with the Impact Assessment Act. But we've also seen it with uh, the attempt to change the constitution with the Charlottetown Accord mm. and the uh, Meech Lake Accord. They both failed. So, but fundamentally, there hasn't been an ability to change the constitution. Why is that? Because we don't have leverage. The rules are all tilted in one direction. Right. So the right. odds of changing anything here are really pretty. Well, it's, imp it, it, it's impossible to, you know, some people have said, well, let's have a constitutional conference to change the constitution. Yeah. That isn't going to happen. And even if there is one, you're never going to do it. And it'll take years, if not mm -hmm. decades wow. uh, to change anything. But, but you can see is... how that, that summary of rules and yeah. the way things operate is just like another poke in the eye of so many people in the West. And it just stokes the resentment. And again, the Western alienation, this is a serious dynamic in our country, is it not? Well, it is a serious dynamic and it goes right back to 1904 with what Clifford Sifton said. Mm -hmm. And that is that the, um, the West has been brought into uh, Canadian Confederation to serve the interests of the East and mm -hmm. damn whatever happens to the West, wow. we will take it all. So, but there is a solution and that solution is what we are working on. And it is a legal solution uh, defined by the Supreme Court. Okay. So I, I do want to get to that. Uh, and I want to show a clip that sure. mentions you, Dennis. Okay. The or else is Dennis Modry and the Alberta Prosperity Project. It's true. We um, proclaimed into law on April the 7th the Citizen Initiative Act, which gives the people the power to collect signatures for a petition campaign to propose a, an amendment. If it's a simple matter of policy, it's a 10% threshold. If it's a constitutional change, it's a 20% threshold. That would mean 600,000 signatures and as I understand it, Dr. Modri has a million people on his database. So part of when I decided I wanted to run, I knew how important it was to make sure that we address the issues of autonomy. And I talked to Dr. Modri as one of my first steps. I said, let's try this together. Let's get as much autonomy as we can. Full well knowing that he's got the power, you've got the power. If we're not successful, and this is why I take your movement very, very seriously, and why Justin Trudeau should take it very, very seriously too, because you have the power to be able to be the URLs. Wow. So that's uh, Premier Daniel Smith talking about you, Dennis Modry, and that movement that you represent. And what is she trying to say? What, what, what is, can you help us understand what's going on there? What we recognize was um, a legal pathway to solve the problem of the imbalance in power between the federal and provincial governments at the negotiating table. And what made me think about it was the equalization referendum that occurred um, in Alberta. So there was a referendum re um, in October of 2020 mm -hmm. to end equalization. Um, and that was passed by 62% of the people who voted in the province of Alberta. But nothing was done with it because Jason Kenney was smart enough to know that he didn't have the ability to, to end equalization. Just because he had a referendum, mm -hmm. he would have to take that referendum, go to Ottawa and um, have a meeting with Ottawa and the other provinces and say, we want to end equalization. He knew that couldn't happen because there are five hurdles to change the constitution. Mm -hmm. That's what, what, that's what would have had to have happened is to overcome those five hurdles. So it was a virtue signaling campaign only. It uh, good. The politics look good. Is that what you're saying? The, the, the politics look good, but the fact that he never did anything with it was because he couldn't. Hmm. 
So the question was raised in my mind, well, how do we get leverage? Well, Quebec gave us a clue to that because Quebec has had a lot more leverage over the years than the other provinces. Mm-hmm. How did they get that leverage? They got that leverage because they threatened to leave Canada. Now, and here is the beauty of what they did subsequent, uh, or what happened subsequent to the second referendum in 1995. The, the federal government asked the question, does a province have the right unilaterally to declare its independence from Canada? And they referred that question to the Supreme Court. It was called the Quebec Secession Reference. The Supreme Court came back with a draft uh, document, um, which was defined as the Clarity Act. And the Clarity Act was then passed into law, and it is the legal pathway for a province to leave Canada. So work with me on this now. Think about this. In Alberta, there's a Citizens Initiative Act. The Citizens Initiative Act um, can force a referendum that can force a change to the Constitution. So Daniel Smith, that clip was from August of 2022. We have 2.8 million followers now. Um, and we've had 119 million impressions across the wow. entire internet and social media. So since that time, you've gone from a million to how many? You said 2.8 million. 2.8 million. We've had 9.23 million views of our videos um, as well. So the point that I'm getting at here is that when she says we have the power, it's not we have the power. The people have always had the power, but the people have never had a vessel in which they could jump on board to get to that power. They've never, they've never had a real voice to do it, and we've created that. So imagine, if you will, that the Alberta Prosperity Project and the freedom movements in Alberta, working together, which we are, um, garner the signatures of 600,000 people, and that's easy for us to do, mm-hmm. Um, And we take those 600,000 signatures, along with a legal petition, which has been defined already and drafted by um, uh, Jeff Rath, who's a constitutional lawyer on our board. And we take that petition to Elections Alberta, along with the signatures. And we say to Elections Alberta, um, we would like... um, um, actually, the way it would work, I'm one step ahead of myself. We have the contact information for the people that would, would sign the petition. So we take the petition to Elections Alberta. Elections Alberta certifies it with or without some changes. And then Elections Alberta sends out the canvassers. They have to collect those 600,000 signatures in 90 days. But we've made it easy for them because mm. we have already we already have the contact information, so we can give the contact information to the canvassers. They go out and they collect those 600,000 signatures. It's really only 580, but we collect 600. We give that to Elections Alberta. They certify the petition now, the validity of the petition. That goes to the provincial government. And the provincial government now is compelled through that petition to hold a referendum at a time of their choice. Let's take it to the next step. The referendum now takes place and the referendum is successful. Now, what is that referendum doing? That referendum is designed to empower the provincial government to restructure Alberta's relationship with Canada. That's the purpose of the referendum. Mm -hmm. But actually the referendum is a referendum to secede from Canada because that's the Clarity Act, okay? And what's important to understand in the Clarity Act is the fourth paragraph of the preamble, last line. It says negotiations might lead to secession. Mm-hmm. Now, imagine, again, the provincial government is armed now with a referendum that gives, its the, give it, that gives it the right to negotiate Alberta's exit from Canada. 
Okay, okay. imagine well, this that is why I understand now the word you keep repeating it leverage. Leverage. So Alberta hmm. is now armed with that referendum, is meeting with Ottawa and the other provinces, but now it has leverage. It solved the problem of the imbalance in power. And it says to Ottawa and the other provinces, these are the things that we want. And probably would say to the other provinces, I'll bet you want those things too. <laughs> if Alberta doesn't get those things after a period of negotiation, it has the moral and legal legitimacy to leave Canada. Hmm. Okay. Now, what does Alberta sovereignty mean? It means different things to different people. And we did a poll on that. For some people, it means that Alberta remains in Canada. This could be what Daniel negotiates. Alberta remains in Canada, but has complete control of its wealth and affairs. Or Daniel might negotiate. Alberta stays in Canada with far greater control of its wealth and affairs that it currently has now. <laughs> if that didn't work, Alberta would then have another option. It could leave Canada and join the US, or it could have a fourth option. Danielle could negotiate that Alberta leaves Canada, becomes an independent sovereign constitutional republic. Mm -hmm. Or more likely, more likely, Alberta would negotiate, uh, Daniel would no negotiate um, the leaving of Canada, of not just Alberta, but Saskatchewan, possibly Manitoba, the territories, and maybe BC, and form a new nation. Mm -hmm. Any one of those five outcomes is possible through those negotiations. Wow. But if you want to fix all of the problems mm -hmm. that Alberta and Saskatchewan are facing, and other regions as well, they may not mm -hmm. all be the same, but if you want to fix the problems, the dysfunctional relationship that Alberta and other provinces have with the federal government, you need to have the leverage to do that. And wow. the only thing that can work is the threat of breaking up Canada. And for those people, for example, that are Canada first and their province second, they need to understand there's no other solution. If you're, if you're willing to accept the progressive restrictions on your freedoms and prosperity that are being imposed on you, and you, and you want to be completely controlled mm -hmm. in everything that you buy and everywhere you go and everything that you do, fill your boots, you know? Um, don't vote for secession then okay. in, an, in a referendum. But if you want change, if you really want change, if you want what Quebec has, mm -hmm. you have to be willing to stand up for yourself. Wow. So this is a way to do it. I, I think for most Canadians, Dennis, this would be reality therapy. It's really about creating a better relationship for that serves actual provinces, not just the federal agenda. And uh, to be able to, in essence, pull a Quebec here as you try to get things back on course um, yes. and, and try to bring uh, Alberta's prosperity and, and future freedom uh, into clarity here. So this is a really uh, profound overview. So how do people get involved? I mean, is the ball really in the court of Premier Smith? So, yeah, let me let me just emphasize one point before I answer that. And, and that is this, is that what we want here in Alberta is not dissimilar to what other provinces, people in other provinces mm -hmm. want. And I really mean it when I say, if we save Alberta, we have the potential to save the rest of Canada. Mm -hmm. And why Alberta first? Because Alberta is most likely the province that can pull this off mm -hmm. of any other province. Okay, other than Quebec, Quebec could do it as well. If, if they were so motivated, but you know, getting uh, two thirds of every dollar of equalization, they've got no incentive to leave right now. Mm -hmm. So they get like 14 billion a year of that 21 billion. So, so the question is that you were asking, if I understood it correctly, is what is the motivation that people have now? Well, I, I think the question I have is, is the ball now in the court okay. of, of Premier Smith? No. It, it, she's, she may be well, she is uh, aligned. She understands what we're trying to do. Any government, provincial government is going to want to have more power than they have now. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, and why she doesn't have the power to do it because, um, 
right now, if the federal, if, if she does not follow federal dictates, um, for example, and a, and a good one right now is the firearms confiscation bill, mm-hmm. bill 21, C, bill C-21. So if she doesn't follow that, what's the federal government going to do? They, they'll do what they always do. They'll withhold transfer payments. In the Klein era, when Ralph was trying to implement some privatization, they withheld the transfer payments. That's happened in other provinces as well. So, so we don't really have the leverage. But she did pass an act called the Alberta Sovereignty Act within a united Canada. And that presumably... Um, is intended to enforce a provincial constitutional authority and not permit federal usurpation of provincial constitutional authority. Mm-hmm. I don't think it can work because um, the reason I don't think it can work, and I've discussed this with the Premier and a number of the MLAs, is how will they respond to the withholding of transfer payments? Mm-hmm because that's the lever. And if transfer payments are withheld and the, and the provincial government doesn't uh, capitulate, then the, the amount of transfer payments that are withheld increases until eventually your arm is twisted to the point where the province will capitulate. So she will be looking to what the Alberta Prosperity Project is doing, working with other uh, organizations in the province um, to bring about the petition. And we'd like to see that petition take place somewhere within the next 18 to 24 months. Um, and then it's up to the um, it's up to the provincial government to decide when they will hold the referendum. Because the petition, remember, is, is only necessary uh, to force the referendum. Okay. The referendum is the next step. So as we look to the next steps and as we wrap up our discussion here, Dennis, what can citizens do? How can they get involved uh, in terms of this issue? Well, I think the, the best way to think about this right now for citizens, um, and, you know, it's interesting when you, when you refer to citizens, are you just referring to citizens in Alberta? Because there are citizens across the country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we have, we have supporters from around the world. Um, and I'm sure a number of those supporters are Canadian expats and maybe Alberta expats. So um, what they can do uh, is they can, they can uh, become members of the Alberta Prosperity Project. They can contribute to the Alberta Prosperity Project. They can share the message uh, with their friends. They can go to the Alberta Prosperity Project website And at the Alberta Prosperity Project website is outlined the rationale to empower the provincial government to restructure Alberta's relationship with Canada. So I've said a lot of things and most people are not going to remember everything that I said. But if if you want to support in your province or in Alberta, the concept of self-determination for your region and you want to get out from under these federal socialist, Marxist, communist dictates. Um, and I hope that doesn't sound too strident, but, you know, um, if you want to get out from under all of that, uh, consider, you know, what you can do in your own province. In Saskatchewan, for example, there's a Saskatchewan Prosperity Project as well. Um, should should uh, Minnesota speak with their MLAs and their MPs? Yes, absolutely. You can speak with your MLAs. Now, Part of the difficulty in speaking with MLAs is uh, there's they're gonna they usually come back with there's no way that my constituents will ever vote for um, a referendum to leave Canada. That's not going to happen. That's not the purpose of it. The purpose of the referendum is to empower your provincial government, in this case Alberta's provincial government, but could happen in any province, is to empower your provincial government to get a better deal within the constraints of the current confederation construct. Mm-hmm. That's all. Okay, so That's the key thing is you're uh, challenging citizens, um, rather, whether they see their, themselves as a citizen of Alberta or Canada, to get involved and to speak up, to learn more about the uh, Prosperity Project, but to talk with your elected officials, both federal and uh, provincially, and say, we want a better deal. Is that right? Mm-hmm. 
We want a better deal. We recognize that we can't change the Constitution easily. Convince me otherwise. Um, and uh, and here is here is a process that can work. Here's a process that can actually um, not only empower your provincial government, but put the power back in the hands of the people. Okay, well, I mean uh, this 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 is about putting the power back in the hands of the people. And there's really no other there's really no other way to do it. And you watch what happens at the uh, UCP AGM this coming November 3rd and 4th. I think the 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 country's going to be very interested in what happens in Alberta. All right. Well, well said, uh, Dennis Modry, uh, board member, founder of the Alberta Prosperity Institute. Thank you for joining our conversation today about how we can not only renew Alberta's relationship with the federal government, but also renew the country and bring more power back to the people. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you very much, David. It's been a, a, a pleasure and I look forward to uh, um, many, many more times to meet and discuss how we move forward together. Thank you for watching Leaders on the Frontier. We're a nonpartisan think tank. We explore ideas, policy, and practical solutions that can make a difference in the lives of Canadians. We do not accept any government funding. We work for you. Thank you for supporting Frontier. Visit fcpp.org to give. While you're there, be sure to check out our latest articles and research. Without open discussion and debate, you're not thinking, nor are you free. Comment below. We'd love for you to join the conversation.